morning. I'd have to first of all thank all of you for inviting me to be one of your plenary speakers for this 2017 colloquium. I have to say I was genuinely taken aback, not merely to be able to speak to you today, but to be one of the speakers alongside who I would call, I hope I don't embarrass you, two giants in the Catholic liturgical world, Professor Mart and Monsignor Andrew Wadsworth. These men are not only men of erudition, but also of experience in the liturgical trenches, if you will, an experience that I lack as a member of a contemplative monastic community where the only possible controversy might be whether or not we should sing today Credo One or Credo Four. <laughs> I suppose I say this as a kind of pre-apology for what I've been fearing might seem to be a, to some, a rarefied, uber-monastic sort of presentation. Beautiful, interesting perhaps, but not of much practical use in a gathering of pastors and church musicians who have dedicated themselves to a renewal of the sacred liturgy in parishes, which far too often resemble ideological battlegrounds than temples of the living God. Nevertheless, I think the issues raised here in my talk are vital ones for our lives as Latin Rite Catholics. My argument is this. There has existed, beginning with our Lord and the Apostles themselves, a distinct tradition which I have called the Christian Psalter. It is not a document, it's not something you can go to a bookstore and pick up, but it is a whole constellation of texts, Greek, Latin, and also Syriac, Arabic, Coptic, Georgian, Armenian, Slavonic, texts which have come down to us and have been enshrined permanently and for all time in the historic liturgies of East and West. The tradition, one might say, revolves like a solar system around the pre-Christian Greek translation of the Old Testament, commonly called the Septuagint. As Latin Catholics, we receive the tradition of the Septuagint substantially through its Latin daughter and granddaughter, the so-called Old Latin, or Vetus Latina, sometimes called the Old Italic family of manuscripts, and the revision of this tradition by St. Jerome, which we call the Vulgate, and the Psalter, uh, which St. Jerome revised, the liturgical Psalter called the Psalterium Gallicanum. That this tradition is not just of passing academic interest is shown by Pope Benedict XVI, in his famous, or infamous, depending on your view, Regensburg Address, in which he argued that the Septuagint, quote, is more than a simple translation of the Hebrew text. It is an independent textual witness and a distinct and important step in the history of Revelation. It brought about this encounter between biblical faith and the best of Greek thought in a way that was decisive for the birth and spread of Christianity. The status of the Septuagint and its Latin descendants within Christendom was universal and virtually unchallenged until the rise of the Reformation. Influenced mightily by late medieval nominalism, the Reformers declared themselves in favor of what they regard as the original Hebrew, from the mouths of the prophets themselves, the pure word of God, unmediated by corrupt medieval ecclesiasticism. The quest for pristine texts morphs eventually over the centuries, under the influence especially of the Enlightenment, into the rationalism and radical skepticism which led to the liberal Protestant school of biblical scholarship. Catholic biblical scholars, enamored of these methodologies, long believing themselves to be constricted by Roman resistance, finally receive in 1943 from the highest authority in the church what they see as vindication 
in the form of the encyclical Divino Afflante Spiritus, which calls for biblical translations to be made from something called the original languages. This would not be an issue at all, except that there is no one original text of the Old Testament, or at least one that we can access. I try not as a rule to dissent from papal documents, but simply put, it is no longer possible, in light of discoveries such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, to speak of anything other than a multiplicity of texts. There is no way to get at the original, quote-unquote, original here. We have only what has been mediated to us by the tradition in which we stand. And herein lies the problem. As Catholics of the Roman Rite, we find ourselves in an unprecedented position. Almost two millennia of theology, liturgy, and devotion based upon the Septuagint and its Latin cognates have been marginalized in favor of a medieval rabbinic Jewish version of the Old Testament, never used by Christians anywhere from apostolic times until early modernity, when it arises in the context of a revolt against Catholic faith and order. Surprisingly, in the course of my research for this paper, I found some of the most convincing arguments for the Septuagint tradition in the works of Protestant authors. F.W. Mosley, an Anglican scholar, in his learned comparison of the Greek and Hebrew Psalters, remarks, it has pleased the divine author of the Psalter and director of the devotions of the church that the form of the Psalms in liturgical use should not agree exactly with what has been called the Hebrew verity. There is no clear reason why it should. With a similar bluntness, almost a century later, Brevard Childs, the renowned Protestant biblical scholar, raised the same question. Why should the Christian church, he says, be committed in any way to the authority of the Masoretic text when its development extended long after the inception of the church and was carried on within a rabbinic tradition? Likewise, Morgens Mueller, a Danish Lutheran theologian, writes in his fascinating study, The First Bible of the Church, A Plea for the Septuagint, 1996, quote, The question of the Old Testament text cannot be separated from the question of what the early church regarded as its Bible. It is unreasonable to say that the, quote, true text actually differs from what the early church believed it to be. A historical determination of what early Christians believed to be the biblical text cannot be replaced by the text-critical question of its original appearance, if this can be answered at all. The quotation from Isaiah 7.14 in Matthew 1.23, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, makes this absolutely clear. Matthew says virgin in accordance with the Greek translation, whereas the Hebrew text uses the word young woman. It would be pointless to rebuke the evangelist for using the wrong text. On the contrary, the wrong text, quote, gains a significance of its own by being used. The church, Mueller argues, has its own Old Testament with respect to both text form and volume inspired by the Spirit of God with special regard to its appearance and mission. To put it differently, the church has made its choice beforehand, and another option of an inherent retrospective effect is unthinkable. Unquote. To the fathers, with at least one notable exception, which we will discuss later, the Septuagint was more than just a translation, but part and parcel of God's saving economy towards the Gentiles, the movement from Jewish particularity to Catholic universality. As he arrives in Rome, that symbol of the entire inhabited world, the Ecumene, Paul declares, this salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. For Cyril of Jerusalem, the Greek Old Testament received from the Jews of Alexandria by the church, quote, was no wordcraft nor contrivance of human devices, 
but the translation of the divine scriptures spoken by the Holy Ghost was of the Holy Ghost accomplished. It was not alien, wrote Clement of Alexandria, to the inspiration of God who gave the prophecy also to produce the translation and make it, as it were, Greek prophecy. Likewise, Augustine, in critiquing Jerome's insistence upon the Hebraica Veritas, insisted that the same spirit that was in the prophets when they delivered those messages was present in person in the 70 men also, the 70 who, according to the, the legend, were the translators of the Septuagint. While some modern Catholics might look askance at this idea of an inspiration or a quasi-inspiration of the Septuagint, at the very least, it can be seen as a strong conviction in the providential role of the Greek Old Testament in preparing the way for the acceptance by the Greco-Roman world of the Jewish Messiah who came according to the scriptures. Arguably, Jerome's insistence upon the Hebraica Veritas introduced an uncertainty in the Western Church as to the status of the Septuagint, a tension that was to surface in full force with the Reformation, influenced mightily by the parallel movement of the new humanism with its call ad fontes, as well as a kind of naive association of post-temple rabbinic Judaism and its version of the Hebrew scriptures as being equivalent to Judaism in the time of our Lord. Hebraica Veritas thus becomes linked with a late medieval Hebrew manuscript tradition, which even Jerome never knew, and of which he most certainly would not have approved. The situation in the Christian East has been very different, and still is to a great extent. On this point, I would suggest, the Latin Church would do well to learn from the Greek East in the spirit of St. John Paul II's brilliant but largely ignored apostolic letter, Orientale Lumen. No tradition, Eastern or Western, has remained untouched by the spirit of the Reformation and the Enlightenment, but for the most part, the Orthodox, blissfully unaware of the work of Western biblical critics throughout most of their modern history, have clung faithfully to the Septuagint tradition for all things liturgical and therefore of necessity for all things theological. The Greek Orthodox biblical scholar Eugene Pentiuk speaks of, quote, the impact of the Septuagint conceptually and lexically on the liturgical life of the church, since the whole Eastern Orthodox hymnography is infused with its concepts and terms. The situation, it seems to me, is no different in our classic Roman liturgical tradition with regard to the Vulgate and the Old Latin Psalters. In fact, the textual variance in both rites, in the East and the West, often provide the only reason for a particular text's utilization within the liturgy. In the Byzantine rite, for instance, Psalm 67, 11, by the way, I quote the uh, Septuagint numbering of the Psalms. Psalm 67, 11 forms the basis of the prayer by which the deacon is blessed to read the gospel. The psalm in both the Septuagint and Vulgate reads, The Lord will give speech with great might to those who preach the good tidings. Somehow, the Masoretic variant doesn't have the same uh, uh, ring, and it is the women that publish the tidings are a great host. So, some might find that eerily uh, similar to some of our parishes. <laughs> Most, if not all of us here assembled will recognize the title of my presentation, Fulfilled is All That David Told, as lifted from the Vexilla Regis, that masterpiece of Christian hymnography, or rather John Mason Neal's translation of it, which is itself a masterpiece of liturgical translation. The full strophe, as rendered by Neal, is, Fulfilled is all that David told in true prophetic song of old, 
Amidst the nations, God, saith he, hath reigned and triumphed from the tree. The first thing that we notice about this this declaration in the hymn is that Christ is the fulfillment of the Psalms of David, full stop. He is at one and the same time the subject matter, the praying subject, and the one who is prayed to. From the moment of the first official proclamation of the message of Christ by Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost, the first and most fundamental assumption of the entire Christian tradition with regard to the Psalter is that it is about Christ, God and man, head and body, from the first psalm to the last, Beatus vir tu laudate dominum. In every generation, Christians have rejoiced to search every psalm, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, word by word, sometimes even letter by letter, and to find in them only Christ. Impleta sunt, says the hymn, Fulfilled is all that David told. The English word to fulfill is almost precisely equivalent to the Latin impleo implere, to fill up to the full as in a vessel something which was lacking, to complete or flesh out something that was formerly an empty form or skeleton. The ancient scriptures of the Jews were a vessel waiting to be filled. Thus, Origen writes, Before the sojourn of Christ, the law and the prophets did not contain the proclamation which belongs to the definition of the gospel, since he who explained the mysteries in them had not yet come. But since the Savior has come and has caused the gospel to be embodied, he has by the gospel made all things as gospel. Ephraim the Syrian puts it this way, The risen Christ by his explanations for symbols and interpretations for similes, receives into himself all the streams of the former revelation. The sea is Christ, who is able to receive the sources and springs and rivers and that flow from within Scripture, that is, the Old Testament. It is Christ, he says, who perfects its symbols by his cross, its types by his body, its adornments by his beauty, and all of it by all of him. We moderns, raised with all of the assumptions of modernity, are distinctly uncomfortable in this realm of traditional Christian interpretation of the Psalms. There is nothing simple or straightforward about the Christology of the Psalms. In fact, one might accurately say that Christ is more concealed then revealed in the Psalms. The Psalter is not a preview of coming attractions. It is read retrospectively in Christ. This is a realm which the overly literalistic or rationalistic mind quite simply cannot enter. To such a mind, traditional spiritual exegesis of Scripture can only appear arbitrary, forced, or even dishonest. One must have the mind of Christ and the anointing, that is, the grace of a holy life and a deep communion with Christ himself and his Holy Spirit. A man must allow Christ, who holds the key of David, to open up the Psalms, as we sing in Psalm 118, verse 18, Revela oculos meos, et considerabo mirabilia de lege tua, Open thou mine eyes, that I may see the wondrous things of thy law. It is no lack of intelligence on the part of the majority of the Jews at the time of Christ that they did not agree with the picture painted by Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost. Christ is the treasure hidden in the field, as St. Irenaeus wrote. The Psalms reveal Christ and conceal him in one and the same breath. He stands behind the wall, gazing through the latticework, as the canticles say. He sees us as we are, but we see him only as through a glass darkly. I will open my mouth in parables, says David in Psalm 77. I will utter dark sayings that have been from the beginning. There is a reason why our Lord, after his resurrection, the resurrection which, by the way, no one but the Father observed 
in the darkness of the tomb, often appears to his friends in a form which is not immediately recognizable. Mary Magdalene, for instance, mistakes him for the gardener. The story of the meeting on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, shows how it is not possible to know beforehand how Christ is the one who comes, as we confess secundum scripturas. The scriptures must be opened by Christ himself in and through the prayer and teaching of his church. To use an image of St. Irenaeus, the church finds in the Psalter, as well as in the Law and the Prophets, a thesaurus, as it were, a treasure trove of countless little precious tesserae, which the Holy Spirit, the master artist, fashions into the beautiful likeness of a king, of a mosaic of a king. In and of themselves, the little tiny tiles mean nothing. What matters is the icon fashioned out of them by the Spirit of God in the minds and hearts of his saints. The Vexilla's warlike strains proclaim the faith of the church, bold, audacious, embarrassingly pre-critical, yet so evocative of a higher order of truth. The Psalter is not a kind of disjointed collection of hymns, poems, and laments, and curses, or liturgical relics from a long-dead Hebrew cult, but a kind of sacramental by which the soul may pierce through the visible veils of the mere letter in the power of the Spirit of God in a way analogous to our perception of the Eucharistic presence. Faith, our outward sense befriending, makes our inward vision clear. Prestet fide supplementum sensuum defectui. So, the second part of why I chose my title, Fulfilled is All That David Told, is the reference in that strophe of the hymn to what David said in prophetic uh, song of old. What did he say in the Psalms that was fulfilled in the Passion and Cross of Christ? Amidst the nations, God, saith he, hath reigned and triumphed from the tree. Reignavit alinio Deus. Literally, God has reigned from the wood. If you go home and look in your personal Bible, whatever the translation, you will find similar language. God reigns amidst the nations, but you will find nothing about a tree or wood. On the other hand, we may not be aware that the mysterious text known to Fortunatus is as close and accessible as our trusty, well-worn, preconciliar hand missile or breviary. What is going on here? Fortunatus was working with a particular version of Psalm 9510, a very rare variant found only in a few old Greek manuscripts in the Psalter of the Coptic Church and in the pre-Vulgate Latin Psalter. It never became a part of the mainstream Septuagint tradition, nor did it find its way into Jerome's version, now known as the Gallicanum, which was destined to become the liturgical Psalter of Latin Christendom. It did, however, exist in the Psalter used by the, uh, the, the canons of St. Peter's Basilica, the so-called Psalterium Romanum. The origins of the variant are extremely obscure. Are we dealing with a pre-Christian text or a kind of early Christian gloss, which at some point very early on blended into the text of the psalm? The dearth of real evidence either way makes a definitive judgment impossible, although, as leading Septuagint scholar Timothy Michael Law writes, it is not at all inconceivable that here, as in other places, the Old Latin preserves the oldest Septuagint reading, where later revisions to the Septuagint have buried the earliest text. Old Testament scholar Margaret Barker argues for the possibility of this tree, throne, cross reading of Psalm 95 as being extremely old and reflecting first temple ideas concerning the identity of the throne of the Davidic king with the tree of life from Eden. Barker mentions, for instance, a mural in the synagogue at Dura Europos depicting a regal figure in a tree, a lion, perhaps, 
of Judah beneath him, and under the tree a table containing showbread loaves from the temple. Even conceding the opinion of most critics that this from the tree was added to the psalm at a later date, Margaret Barker opines that it would have been an appropriate addition even before the Christians began to describe the cross as a tree. Indeed, the reign of the God-man from the tree of the cross appears as the central image of the earliest Christian witness to Christ and his saving works, as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles. In Peter's Apologia before the Sanhedrin, in Acts 5, he lands this devastating blow upon the very men who had just participated in the bloody scene at Calvary. The God of our fathers has raised up Jesus, whom you put to death, hanging him on a tree. But note this disconnection in terms of imagery. We all know that Jesus was nailed to a cross, a fabricated wooden instrument of torture and execution invented by the Romans. He was not literally hung from a tree as from a gallows, and yet this image is painted for us in the earliest apostolic witness to the meaning of Christ's death. He who was without sin became a curse for us, for in the law we read, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Galatians 3.13, Deuteronomy 21.23 in the Septuagint. The first direct allusion outside the canonical Old Testament, uh, New Testament to this verse can be found in the epistle of Barnabas, dated by most to between A.D. 100 and 130, and possibly earlier. He says, The royal realm of Jesus is founded on the wood. A few decades later, the verse is quoted directly in Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trypho, probably written around 155. Here, Justin makes Psalm 95.10, along with Isaiah 7.14, A virgin shall conceive, a centerpiece of his argument that the post-Christian Jewish rabbinical establishment had suppressed or altered certain Old Testament passages because of their prophetic witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Justin writes, No one of your people was ever said to have reigned as God and king over the Gentiles except the crucified one. Later references to the verse appear mostly in the Latin Fathers. Tertullian appeals to the verse alongside a text from Deuteronomy 28.66, And thy life shall be as it were hanging before thee. The prophet Joel 2.22, The tree hath brought forth its fruit. And Psalm 21.17, They look and stare upon me. David himself said Tertullian, was saying the Lord would reign from the tree, not that tree in paradise that gave death to the first human beings, but the tree of the suffering of the Christ, from where the life that hung there was not believed by you, being the Jews who who did not receive Christ. Another particularly striking example is this comment by Augustine in his exposition of Psalm 95. The Lord established his sovereignty from a tree. Who is it that fights with wood? Christ. From his cross he has conquered kings. So you may ask, why am I detailing all of this for you? The reason is this. As a precise quotation, this reading appears at these crucial places in the traditional Roman rite. One, it is the Alleluia verse for the Friday in the Easter octave, and in the Paschal Tide Masses of the Cross. Two, in the daily Paschal Tide commemoration of the Cross at Lauds and Vespers. And three, in a Matins antiphon of the Feast of the Most Holy Rosary. Crucis imperium superhumerum eius, reignavit alinio deus. The empire shall be upon his shoulders, even the cross, for the Lord hath reigned from the tree. Somewhat akin, one might say, to the church's insistence upon the four Gospels with different details and interpretations of our Lord's ministry, the church has not only tolerated but has cherished the differences which exist between the two Latin versions of the Old Testament. 
While St. Jerome's Salterium Gallicanum did, for the promotion of the Carolingians, become the standard Psalter of Latin Christendom, the extreme conservatism of the Roman ecclesiastical mindset would never countenance a complete replacement of all of the texts of the Vetus Latina, such as this version of Psalm 95, as well as the Invitatoriate Matins, and a great many of the proper chants of the Mass and the Divine Office. A perfect example of this mindset can be observed as late as 1604, in the utmost vigilance shown by Pope Clement VIII in his revision of the Missali Romanum. The printers, apparently, had begun on their own initiative to conform the text of the propers to the brand new shiny Clementine Vulgate edition. On the 7th of July, 1604, interesting date that, Clement VIII acted decisively against the, what he calls the temeritas et audacia of printers and others who dare to eliminate the Vetus texts by declaring their copies null and void and threatening excommunication, latte sententiae, against any printers or booksellers who persist in printing and selling the bastardized missiles. There you go. So, the modern church seems less tolerant of this kind of diversity. As far as I've been able to discern, some of you may be able to correct me, in the modern Latin liturgical books, shockingly, all references to the ancient variant of Psalm 95.10 have been expunged, except for one last place, the Alleluia verse of the Friday after Pascha in the 1974 Solem Graduali Romanum. The Concilium Ad Exequendam even saw fit to brush under the proverbial rug the reference to Christ reigning from the tree in the Vexilla Regis. The barbarism and contempt for immemorial tradition here is shocking, to say the least. There could not be a more perfect example of a hermeneutic of rupture or discontinuity than this. Dom Lentini, the Benedictine who uh, revised uh, the, the text, Latin text of the hymns, in his first draft, uh, 1968, specifically retained the reading with the comment, we dare not, non audemus, suppress the strophe, nor change the line. Clearly, something happened between the first draft and the final product. The dependence of the sacred liturgy, the Lex Orandi, and therefore the theology of our church, the Lex Credendi, upon these sorts of ancient textual variations is shown also in the use made in the, in the traditional Roman liturgy of Psalm 138 for the feasts of apostles and evangelists. The following form of Psalm of uh, verse 17 from the Psalterium Gallicanum and derived literally from the Septuagint forms the basis of numerous proper parts of both mass and office. Miki autem nimis honorati sunt amici tui Deus. To me, O God, your friends are most highly honored. Nimis confortatus est principatus eorum. Their dominion is strengthened to the uttermost. As uh, John Mason Neal in his Psalm Commentary remarks, the Chaldean and all the other ancient versions with one voice translate the Hebrew word rea, thy friends, instead of thy thoughts. And the commentators with one voice explain the verse of the saints of God under the leadership of the apostles. In this sense, this verse has suggested the use of the psalm in the common of apostles and has furnished its antiphon. The Psalter of the Nova Vulgata, first issued in 1969 in tandem with the new liturgical books, taking its cue from the Masoretic text, gives us, Miki autem inimis preciose cogitationes tuae Deus. To me, O God, your thoughts are most precious. Nimis gravis summa earum, how weighty are the sum of them. So, the image of the apostles as the friends of God, present in the Roman liturgical tradition as far back as we can go, is jettisoned, along with the valuable cross-testamental connection with John 15.15. I no longer call you servants, but friends. 
Furthermore, having also made nonsensical the reference to the princedom of the apostles, the reformers proceeded also in a systematic way to eliminate all psalm verses from the liturgy which speak of the apostles as having monarchical or princely characters. Thus, we no longer speak of the apostles as princes over all the earth, Psalm 44, crowned with glory and honor, Psalm 8. Thus, as Peter Jeffrey writes, an entire line of patristic exegetical thinking, which could not have been more Roman, has systematically been excised from the renewed Roman rite. Thus, the problem with liturgical texts in the Roman rite goes far beyond the usual spats about inclusive language or dynamic equivalence, or which styles of translation appeal more to John and Mary Catholic. The problem is much more fundamental. It is a problem of root texts themselves, which leads me to say, with apologies to Thomas Howard, liturgium authenticum is not enough. It has done a great service to Catholics who attend the Holy Mysteries, celebrated in their mother tongue, defending them from the importation of certain heterodox ideologies by means of non-literal methods of translation. Yet while Liturgia Authenticum states that the greatest care is to be taken so that the translators' translations express the traditional Christological, typological, and spiritual sense, nonetheless, it then endorses the Nova Vulgata, a Masoretic-based text riddled with errors as the text of reference for liturgical translation in the ordinary form of the Roman rite. Therefore, Liturgium Authenticum conceals a deeper and more profound theological rift. The authority of the Masoretic text is unchallenged and even confirmed. The point of reference is not the textual and tradition of the apostles, the evangelists, the fathers and saints throughout the Christian centuries, but a medieval production of rabbinic Jewish scholars, which was never regarded as a standard in the Christian church before the Reformation. And, according to some scholars, contains numerous instances of what may or may not have been attempts to eliminate Christological interpretations. For the fathers and for the liturgy, the details matter, even those which, according to a more literal reading, seem to be taken out of context or overinterpreted. Even the peculiarity of verb tenses matter. Take, for instance, Psalm 121, verse 2. The Masoretic text has, Our feet shall stand in thy gates, O Jerusalem, whereas the Septuagint and Vulgate have, Our feet were standing. John Mason Neal, in the Spirit of the Fathers, offers this beautiful explanation. The very sign and cause of our hope that we shall go into the house of the Lord is that our feet are even now already standing in the gates of Jerusalem. That is, that our desires and contemplations are fixed and established in the mansions of the kingdom of heaven because our conversation is in heaven. And accordingly, the apostle speaks in similar language to those still on pilgrimage. Ye are come unto Mount Zion the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. Likewise, very odd renderings and constructions, according to a critical approach, such as the sixfold appearance in the old Latin Psalter, preserved also in the Vulgate, of the mysterious word edipsum, give St. Augustine the occasion for a beautiful insight about the nature of God and our participation in him. Edipsum, for him, becomes a title of God, a different way of rendering the I am that I am, God's self-revelation to Moses in the burning bush, the Greek ego eimi, or the ho-on of Christ's halo in orthodox iconography, I am the existing one, I am being, I am existence itself. So in the same Psalm 121, the city of God is said to be in edipsum. That is, the unity of the church is based on the unity existing within the tripersonal Godhead. Ultimately, it matters very little, according to the church's spiritual vision, where particular constructions come from and whether or not they are authentic. 
Liturgists and theologians simply do not have the authority to suppress elements of the liturgy that they find strange or unsettling or hard to, st- hard to understand. The words reñavit adinyo have become sacred and authoritative by virtue of their use. Their very adoption in the perennial tradition of the Latin church and are in a non-technical, but in a nonetheless authentic theological sense, the words that David told in true prophetic song of old. Thus, there is not merely a Christological key to the Psalter, but a liturgical key. The church, through the liturgy, not only gives us prompts for our own meditation on the Psalms, but also applies in some way the grace of any particular Psalm to different contexts. With a kind of playfulness and a profound freedom in the Holy Spirit, the liturgy teaches us to view the mystery from every possible direction in an almost kaleidoscopic fashion, applying the same phrase or image in a psalm here to our Lord and then to another mystery, here to our lady and there to a martyr, there to a confessor, here in the mouth of a penitent, there in the mouth of a departed soul. Consider, for example, Psalm 23, Domini est terra. One of the most important psalms in terms of Christology, it appears in a wide array of different liturgical contexts, not only in the Mass or Office, but also in the Ritual and the Pontifical. The first reference, the second Sunday after Epiphany, in a Matins Responsory, we sing of the whole earth as the domain of Christ the Lord, all its fullness and all who dwell therein, that is, the Gentiles. For he has founded it upon the sea and established it upon the floods, a reference to the beginning of a new creation and a new humanity when Christ the God-man arose from the waters of the Jordan. In other contexts, such as the propers of Advent and Christmas, the psalm sets forth the innocent and pure-hearted man, big M, as Christ himself, who alone was worthy to ascend the hill of Calvary, and therefore to ascend into the heavens. Yet another Christological insight is brought to the fore in the same seasons, and especially in the Advent Masses of Our Lady, with the verse commanding that the porte eternales, the eternal doors, be thrown open, so that the King of glory may enter in. Is this not an image of Christ coming forth from the womb of the Virgin, the Virgin who is called the Porta Celi? In another Marian context, the third antiphon from Matins of the Immaculate Conception reads, In conceptione sua, accepit Maria, benedictionem ad domino, et misericordiam adeo salutari suo. Is this not the dogmatic definition of 1854, clothed in sacred song? That Our Lady, at the first instant of her conception, receives the blessing the singular privilege of freedom from all stain of original sin and mercy through Jesus Christ, her Son, who is both the Savior of mankind and her own Savior. In the ritual and pontifical, the one who is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord, who seeks the face of Jacob's God, is the young cleric receiving tonsure, or the abbot chosen to shepherd his sons, or most poignantly, the little child who dies in the Lord. All these receive the blessing of the Lord and his mercy through the ministry of the church. And finally, in one of the most picturesque rites of our Roman tradition, the dialogue that takes place between the bishop and the deacon at the closed door of the church before its consecration. The bishop, after going around the church three times and sprinkling the outside of the church, goes to the door, knocks on it, with the foot of his, uh, his crozier, and he says, Lift up your gates, ye princes, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. And the deacon says, Who is this king of glory? And then he says, The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. This happens three times, and then he's let in. It's, it's beautiful. The issues here, I would suggest, are not minor, nor are they merely poetic or aesthetic in nature. They are about the very basic stuff of our Catholic faith, especially our Christology, and about reverence for tradition, just as we have received it. 
the debate between Augustine and Jerome on the Hebrew verity, the Hebraica veritas, in some way anticipates our dilemma. In the words of the Lutheran scholar Mueller, to Augustine, history has a meaning which is lost upon Jerome, who thinks it possible to start all over again. Catholic biblical scholars can, do, and should examine multiple manuscript traditions, but the sacred liturgy does not depend upon the current state of biblical scholarship. In the church, it is the liturgy, not the lecture hall, the academic journal, or the overpriced monograph, which is the privileged place of the interpretation of scripture, and of the Psalter in particular. The liturgy is where these obscure songs and poems are transformed from being dead, inert relics of a long-dead civilization into a life-giving and living participation. I dare even say sacrament, small s, of the mystical body in the prayer of Christ the head. Our liturgical life as Roman Catholics bears the wounds, still very raw, of a giving in to this temptation of starting all over again, according to a kind of pure standard, which is only a figment of the reformer's imagination. As church musicians and clergy, and simply as Catholics, we never work in a vacuum. The fathers of the Second Vatican Council did not, nor did the Concilium ad exequendam, nor do any of the successors of St. Peter. If we are Catholics, we stand within a tradition which first became incarnate in the intersection of biblical faith with Greco-Roman culture, even as the Savior himself took flesh in the womb of a Jewish virgin, the subject of a Hellenized Roman Empire. The situation, I think, is quite serious. And as with the more general liturgical crisis in the Latin Church, there are no easy solutions. We must continue to apply to all things theological and liturgical, a hermeneutic of continuity. But said hermeneutic cannot blind us to the bare fact that there has been in this area, as in many other areas of the church's life, a rupture, a breach, a discontinuity with the past. It is my strong view that the ancient Greek and Latin texts of the Christian Psalter must be at the forefront of our efforts to bring about a restoration of all things in Christ. The challenge is immense, but I do have a few very preliminary, fragmentary ideas about how we as modern Latin Catholics can at least begin to recover this tradition, liturgically, theologically, and spiritually. So very quickly, I have four points. My first observation is that this issue highlights, once again, the dire need for mutual enrichment between what we now call the two forms of the Roman Rite. I am not a believer in the idea that the modern form of, uh, of the liturgy has nothing to offer the usus antiquior, but I believe that in this particular area, the enrichment must come exclusively from the direction of the old to the new. Concretely, this means fostering in any way we can the use in our parishes and seminaries of the 1974 edition of the Graduali Romanum, either according to their proper melodies or in the various simplified versions with which we are all well acquainted. Until such time as I am elected Pope Adeodatus III, <laughs> I suspect that the Nova Vulgata and other vernacular translations of the Psalms will retain their primacy in the ordinary form, alas. There, there really were two popes, Adeodatus. My second observation is that pastors, both bishops and priests, as well as deacons, should seek to immerse themselves in the mystical and Christological approach to the Psalter, and then to open up these riches little by little to the faithful. My father prior often says, preach the propers, preach the propers. There is no requirement whatsoever that the homily be on the gospel or one of the other readings. You can and should, and this goes also for homilies in the Usus Antiquior, preach from time to time or even regularly, on the introit, the gradual, or responsorial psalm, or the communion antiphon. It is easier than ever for pastors to instruct themselves in the school of the fathers through, for instance, 
the two volumes of the ancient Christian commentary on scripture, an ecumenical effort published by the Evangelical Protestant InterVarsity Press, or the four-volume commentary by Neil and Littledale on the Psalms, which I have cited several times during this presentation, available for free online, as so many other wonderful things are, and also in a very handsome reprint from a small press in Colorado. In terms of individual fathers, it doesn't get much better than the Enorationes of St. Augustine. I would argue that this is his finest work. A third and related observation is that lay folk should pursue the same sort of study. How wonderful would it be to see in our parishes Bible study groups dedicated to reading through the Psalms line by line, comparing translations, and learning from the old commentators and the liturgy itself, the various ways in which Christ reveals his face in the Psalms. My fourth and final observation is that the time is long overdue for a fresh translation of the Old Testament based upon the Latin Vulgate, with an eye perhaps also to the Septuagint and the Vetus Latina traditions, where variant readings give rise to significant theological or spiritual insights. The Dewey Reims Bible, of course, is a much-loved and historically significant translation, but I think there is a need for a somewhat updated idiom, I say somewhat updated idiom, perhaps in the style of the RSV. Such a translation ought to be fairly literal, especially given the love of the fathers, and especially the medieval commentators, for detail. It would also be extremely beneficial, I think, for the text to be accompanied by some form of gloss or catena, synthesizing the insights of the ancient and medieval commentators and modern ones who write in their spirit. After all, we as Catholics inherit not merely bare texts, but ones which have passed, been passed down century by century by holy men and women, guided by the spirit of truth as they prayed, preached, and lived the Psalms. In the face of such a treasure, we can only say with David, Funes cecidderunt miki in preclaris, etenim hereditas mea preclara est miki. To me the boundary lines have fallen in the fairest of places. My inheritance, how goodly it is to me. Thank you for your attention.